Thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to look at your word, guide us and teach us what you would have us to learn from this evening and as and how we can apply all this information. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Acts chapter 14. We're continuing the first missionary trip of uh, Paul and Silas. They were chased out of Antioch when the Jews raised a ruckus against them. And we left off that they were headed to Iconium. So here we are in verse 14. Verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. <laughs> yeah, here, here I am again going crazy. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and, and so spake. And a great multitude, both of Jews and also of Greeks, believed. And the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they speaking boldly to the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, a part held the, with the Jews and a part held with the apostles. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, then uh, they were aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derba, cities of Lyconian, and unto the region that lies around about. And there they preached the gospel. All right, so here we have uh, Paul and Barnabas. They get chased out of Antioch and they go south <laughs> to Iconium. Uh, and there they start preaching and they did just what they kept doing each time. They went to the synagogue on the first Saturday of the, of the day, presented the message to the Jews. Some Jews believed, some didn't, and then they would take it to the Greeks or the rest of the people. All right, so when you see Greeks, it's Gentiles. All right, and so, and it says a multitude of the Jews and the Greeks believed. This was quite a revival. It doesn't tell us how much time has elapsed in this period. It just says that during their teaching, a multitude, a large number of people, so they build a pretty good-sized church, just as they had done in Antioch. They had built a church, and then the Jews got jealous and chased them out of town, you know, raised a ruckus, got them out of town. Now they're in Iconium. They're building this, this church. And in verse 2, it says, but... <laughs> Something is going to change. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jewish believers are following Paul. Gentiles are following Paul. And it says the unbelieving, the not persuaded Jews, stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. And that means to embitter, to cause harm. So the, the Jews take side with the Gentiles. It's amazing how enemies will come together to fight somebody else. All right, and we see it all the time. And here we've got the unbelieving Jews who will have nothing to do with Gentiles in most cases getting out there and saying, we've got a problem. Uh, this Paul fellow is causing problems. From our side, he's taking fellow Jews out of our fellowship and teaching them this idea of grace and not having to do works. And for you, 
what was the damage done to the Gentiles? Well, he's taken people away from the worship of Jupiter and, and Mars and, and Athena and all, these, all their gods and saying, we've got a problem. Things are happening. This guy is stirring up the town with these new doctrines. And this is very an interesting thing that they come together and they stirred them up to have embitterment. Because at first the Gentiles don't care, it's just another God. Uh, and this happens over and over in especially uh, places that have polytheism. When somebody becomes a Christian, they, they have a trouble. They've got to get through in their mind that it's not just another God in the pantheon. They have to give up the pantheon of gods. And most people just say, well, you're, you're following a God. It's a strange one because you only have one, but you're just... And so we're, they're stirring people up. And this is a problem... And this is what's even happening in our world today. We have groups that are attacking Christians because we won't accept their lifestyle when we follow God's word. And we see it all the time. We've got the homosexuals going out and picking the one business that won't, won't take care. You know, eight, eight businesses in the town that will you know, bake them a cake or bake cards or flower work. And they'll pick the one that, won't, that has a Christian standard on it and attack them. And we see this over and over. We see it in the workplace when somebody will say something that's biblical, but it's not politically correct and end up losing their job over it or being threatened or, you know, or as we've happened many times for Christians, we're being sent into re-education classes. You know, you have to learn sensitivity for these poor people that live a different lifestyle that you, and you're not willing to accept it. And we're seeing these kind of things happen a lot. Where if you don't agree with what the world says is right, then they want to send you to some class to learn how to respect that person's lifestyle or, cho or choices. So here they're riling up the town. Riling up the town against the brethren, it says. Not just Paul and, and Barnabas, but the entire group. You know, the Jews are upset because their fellow Jews are leaving. They're not following the same facts. And the idea for them was that the Messiah has come. All right? The Messiah has come. He's offered sacrifice, and we get to heaven by his grace, not by the sacrifices in the temple, not by the activities, not by being a Jew, not by being circumcised, and all the things that the Jewish believers were, and they were separating them. And it was a big problem. They were stirring up the town. Now, they've just been chased out of Antioch when they stirred up the town. And here it says in verse 3, A long time, therefore, abode they speaking boldly in the Lord. We don't know what a long time is here, but they stayed. Even though they were stirring up the town against them, it just made them bold. And this is something that we as Christians need to be able to understand. We need to be bold with the gospel. Not abrasive, not offensive, but we need to be a bold. And that is going to bother people. When we say that sin is sin, people are going to look at us and say, well, who are you? You think you're better than we. Well, it has nothing to do with me being better or worse than you. It's God says it is sin. And this is something we have to understand. We as Christians sin all the time. We would hope not to. But even when we think we have, and then God shows us the depth of our sin, and we go, wow, I'm worse sinner than I, ever, than I thought. And this is where we come into. God keeps showing us depths of our relationship and sin with him. And 
you know, the longer we walk with him, the more he, deep he shows us and says, this is sin, this is sin, this is sin. You know, we think about, that, you know, you shall not lie. Well, that sounds so easy. Until we look, then God said that if you don't tell the whole truth, you've lied. How many times do we not tell everything that we know about something, you know, because somebody might get in trouble, we might get in trouble, we might call, call, cause a problem, and God is saying, well, then you've lied. Uh, how many times do we do things by omission, not just commission, we just don't do something that we should have done? That's sin. And God starts showing us all the little places that we have problems, and, but we need to be bold for Christ. And it says, they were bold, and it says, he gave them the testimony of the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. In other words, miracles. And this is kind of an interesting thing. They gave testimony unto the word of his grace. This is what's one of the big things that separates Christianity from every other religion out there is grace. God gives us his life. Not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, because he just chooses to give it to us. You know, God died on the cross so that we could have grace. And, you know, we don't fully understand grace and probably never will. All right? No matter how long you study it, grace is so, many, so far beyond us. And I've shared with you an acronym that people have given, and it, it is powerful and yet basic, God's riches at Christ's expense. Everything that God has is given to us because of Christ dying for our sins. And that's just the tip of the iceberg about what grace is, and that's more than we can understand. We get everything that God has because Christ died. And this is why it is so beautiful when we turn to him and start abiding under his grace, it really does become him. I just say, God, I surrender. My life is surrendered to you. Now, he now comes in, he dwells in me, he changes me from the inside out, and I start acting differently. I, and I start getting love for people, I start getting uh, gracious with other people. And one of the things that I know that, I, that I've taught and I truly believe that is when you get saved, there should be one thing, at least in your life, that made you a new creation. If you don't have anything that's changed, then you might want to look at it, you know, or if you're not, at least changing. And this is one thing I say, where are you today compared to where you were last year or two years ago or 10 years ago? Are you closer to God today than you were before? If not, then you have to examine yourself and say, do I really know him? But I also don't want to get too introspective on that because we all have up and down. You know, I've been following God for a long time. There's times when I feel real close to God. <laughs> and there's times when I go, wow, I, I'm not there. I'm not even close to where I'm supposed to be. And this is why it's important for us to put our trust in the word. It says, if we shall confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. And this is, confess the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord has some impact on it. It should mean that we are living to honor him. And we as Americans have a hard time with the word Lord and King and Master because we are very independent people. Nobody is going to tell us what to do. 
No how, no way. We're going to live our own way. And yet, as Christians, we're to surrender our life to Christ and let him tell us what to do. And that's a tough thing to do. It's a tough thing for pride just to let go of. It's a tough thing for Americans to give up because of our, our hard, <laughs> independent spirit that we have. And yet, he is Lord and needs to be Lord. And I don't want to go into this idea of lordship salvation, but there is a part of it that needs to have Christ being Lord of our life for us to be truly saved. And so we want to keep this in. They preached grace. This was a different picture for, for it. And it's the thing that sets people aside. And people don't like having to depend on God's grace it, because it's too simple. You know, and people will go, well, what's my part in it? Surrender to God. <laughs> let God do what he's going to do and surrender to him. But I want to do something. Surrender to God and let God do what he wants you to do. But I got to earn it somehow. Surrender to God because you can't earn it. You know, and this is the problem that we have. If we get too introspective of our life and go, well, I'm not doing enough. Well, that's true. We're not doing enough. We will never do enough for God because his standard is high. His standard is perfection. His standard is more than we can do in the first place. But the more he crucifies our flesh, the closer we get to doing what he wants. But that closer just means that instead of being in the distance between L.A. and uh, New York, we made it, we made it to uh, uh, Orange County. <laughs> Which I know L.A. is in Orange County, but you know, we made it a couple miles outside of L.A., you know, we made it a long way, but we still, the distance between what he wants and where we are is extreme. Because we'll never get there. You know, maybe I made it all the way to Bakersfield. <laughs> you know, but I still have a long ways to go to get to New York. Uh, and, it took me, and it took me my entire life just to get from L.A. to Bakersfield. <laughs> all right. Now, and I'm making, it, making the point because that's God's standard for us. His standard is, I want you to be like me knowing that we will never get there until he glorifies us at the end of our life. But this is why we need to be careful when we look at it and say, am I really saved? Am I making progress? Do I truly know him? Do I love people more today than I did in the past? Do I, am I more forgiving today than I was in the past? Am I more obedient today than I was in the past? And not... And that's why I always say, I'd like to look back at least a year or more because we have our ups and downs. If I look at, do I love him more today than I did yesterday? Maybe not. <laughs> All right. Do I love him more today than I did a year ago, 10 years ago? That's where I can see that growth. And this is why we examine, Paul said to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because he understood that we can delude ourselves. And many people get deluded. They do lots of good works. I do lots of good works. I come to church on Sunday morning. I read my Bible. I pray. I do, all, I do all these things. But do you know him? And this is very important. Do I know him? In my case, yes, I know that I know him. He changed my life drastically 50 years ago. And he's been changing my life greatly ever since. So I know that he's doing the work. And this is why it's important. The ministry of grace. Grace changes lives. You know, and I've, I've looked at people over the years and I've seen 
Very rare do you, does anybody ever get totally changed by law because all they do is get a bunch of rules to live by. You know, here, give me, give me my 20 things to do to, to please God and I'll be happy. Only problem is there's, there's not enough. You know, you would have to have millions of things to do to please God and you still wouldn't have enough because he's infinite. And we cannot give him enough of our self by works. And now, having said that, we will do works. The more I know him, the more works I'm going to do. <laughs> but the question is, why am I doing my works? Am I doing it because I need to please God or am I doing it because he loves me so much and I just want to give back that love? And there's a big difference between the two. And we see many people in religion doing things to try to please God. And they may look pretty good. There are many people that look good before, before the world. Now, if we knew their minds, it would be a different story. If we knew their heart, it would be a different story. But outwardly, there are many people that are going to be in hell that are good. A lot of good people in hell. Probably more good people in hell than, than what we would call bad people in hell. Because God's standard is perfection. And you know what? We're going to have a lot of people that we would in this world would have called bad people in heaven. But they're going to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ in heaven. And we're not going to see that badness that, that we would have looked at. And this is something that's very important. It's all God's work. And it says that uh, they preached this. There were wonder signs. And then verse 4, but again... But the multitude of the city was divided, in part held with the Jews, in part with the apostles. This is quite an interesting ministry that they're being able to divide the city between the Jews and the and the and and Jesus. Uh, we don't know if it's a 50-50 split, but the people are divided, and you can almost picture, and you, we can picture just what even happens in today's world. You know, what do you think about these Christians? Well, I really like them. Well, how can you like them? You know this. You know, these are the things they believe. You know, they're, they're judging our lifestyle and all these other things and the divisions that are coming in there, the discussions you could picture in this town. You know, uh, going on in here. And then in verse 5 was a very interesting thing. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and of the Jews to the, with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. In other words, they were coming out to kill Paul and Barnabas. They had finally had enough. The division in the town. And this is the interesting thing. When God starts moving and we see all of this stuff going on in, in the world, the world gets angry. Even if we don't say anything, we bring the Spirit of God into a situation and that irritates people. I've had people get, up, get uptight and get, get irritated just because I came in. And that's even before I was a pastor. You didn't have to say a word. Why? Because when we walk into darkness with, the, with God in us, we are light. And the Holy Spirit starts bringing conviction even before words are being said. And this is when we enter into the word, we enter into prayer, we enter into a service, and the Holy Spirit starts moving even before anything's done or said. Because he's saying, yes. And God's righteousness will make us have conviction. Now, the only problem with conviction is for the world, they get condemnation. For us as Christians, there is no condemnation. Romans 8.28 says there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. 
We are not condemned because we are forgiven. Now, we will be convicted. We need to change our life, but we're not condemned. But the world takes that conviction and allows it to be condemnation. And, you know, because they are condemned. They're going to go spend eternity in hell if they don't repent. So they will get that conviction and say, well, I can't change. And if you think back before you were saved, there are many times when you thought, well, I can't change. I'm at the end of my rope. There's no, no hope. And many people actually think about committing suicide at that point. You know, there's no hope. There's no, they're never going to change. Nothing has been working. And condemnation comes in and makes them feel like nobody's going to ever love them. We need to be very careful as Christians not to speak condemning words. We want to speak conviction. God has rules. We break his rules. And there's judgment to come. But there's a way out. There's a way out. And this is the interesting thing. People, first off, have to realize that they're a sinner. And even as Christians, we need to realize we are sinners before we're going to repent. And the world has to get to a place where they recognize they're a sinner. I've heard so many Christians say, well, I made a mistake. Well, of course, you made a mistake. You weren't following God. That's a pretty big mistake. It's called a sin. But you know, until, they're really, until we're ready to call something a sin, we will not get victory over it. And that's really the, the thing that is taught in the 12-step movements and everything. You've got to acknowledge that you've got a problem. But they took it from the scripture. Until I'm really to admit that I've got a problem, I'm not going to deal with it. And this is the area that we're in. It is a problem. It is a sin. Once I can now admit that I have this problem, now I can seek God's help to get rid of it. And it doesn't matter what the problem is. Whatever sin it is, it's the same step. First off, recognize that I have a sin issue. Then ask God's help to get rid of the sin. But without that first step, we can't get there. To get saved, we need to have that first step of recognizing that I am a sinner. Which is why, you know, our first step in witnessing to people is to give them the laws of God and say you are disobedient. It doesn't take long if somebody's going to be honest. You know, you know, have you ever told a lie? Well, if somebody tells you no, they're lying. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and this is the whole thing. Have you ever stolen anything at all in your life? And almost everybody has stolen something in their life, no matter how honest they are. They've picked up the dollar bill off the ground that doesn't belong to them and kept it. You know, uh, they have taken things from work, you know, supplies from work. They have, you know, done different things. Um, when they were a kid, they stole the candy bar out of the store and got away with it, the, you know, and, and did it, you know. Uh, you know, all these different things. We know that we are sinners. And once we know we're a sinner, now we go, okay, God, you say the wages of sin is death. My sin has earned me death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And that's why Jesus died, for that salvation. And once we accept that salvation, now he says, you are complete. We sang the song this morning, and I love it. When we stand complete before him. I love that idea. When we finally die or are raptured and we stand before God, we will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We will be made perfect without the sin being an issue. And we will stand complete, perfect before God for him to say, well done.
good and faithful servant and say, come on into the kingdom. Why? Because we're clothed right. We have the clothing of Jesus Christ. All through the New Testament, Paul's biggest statement was, put on Christ Jesus. How do we put him on? We get saved. It's pretty simple. And I love the picture of it because when he says put on, it's the picture of somebody wrapping themselves in the most luxurious bathrobe that there is. Very comfortable clothes. And when we put on Christ, it is to be comfortable. And, you know, sometimes we don't feel comfortable in Christ when we're walking on this world. (laughs) Other times we do. But, you know, the question is, are we really, truly just relaxed? You know, we do not strive to be perfect. Because if we do, we won't, be, we won't be perfect. Because if we're striving to do it, we're trying to do something in our own strength. And Isaiah tells us that all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. So all that I do, God says, worthless. When I just step back and say, God, it's you, change me. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. He wants to crucify my flesh so that he lives in me and he comes out of me. And as he comes out of me, I will be doing the righteous acts that God wants me to do, but it's Christ doing the work through me. (laughs) And then, on top of that, when I allow that to happen, when I get to heaven, he says, these are all the works you let me do, now you get rewarded for them. Because if I do my own works, they're done in the flesh and they're, and they're burnt up. You know, we need to get into our mind that my service for God is just relaxing and letting him lead. Now, that may mean I'm doing a lot of hard labor at times. But it's not me initiating. It's not me trying to say, look at me. <laughs> because ultimately, when we're doing good works, if it's in the flesh, it's look at me. I'm so much better than everybody else. I'm... I'm doing all these things. And this is where they are. And it says they were ready to stone them. (laughs) They're ready to kill them. They're going to go out. And verse 6 says, but they were aware, but but we were aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby. So they're going further south in in this uh, expedition. And the cities of Laconia and unto the region that was around about. And there they preached the gospel. (laughs) So this is now the second time that Paul and Silas have been chased out of town. They got chased out of town in Antioch. Now they got chased out of town in Iconium. And now they're going to uh, Lystra and Derba. Verse 8. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. And the same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leapt and walked. And when the people saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of the Lyconian, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercury because he was the, one, the chief speaker. Then the chief priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gate and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard, they rent their garments and ran in among the people, crying out, 
saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We are also men of like passion with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all the things that are in it, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without a witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people and that they had not done sacrifice to them. This is an interesting reaction that was happening on here. And it's not an uncommon reaction in the to missionaries and everything when miracles happen. All right, they get to Lystra and this man who had never walked from birth is healed. And this is kind of an interesting thing. They meant him, says he had never walked and he heard Paul's speech and he was looking at him very intently. And Paul recognized that he had the faith and that he'd been changed. And Paul said, stand up, stand upright on your feet. And it says, and he leapt up and walked. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing when you think about it. This man has never walked. And when he gets healed, he leaps to his feet and starts walking. No learning how to walk, no, no, no problems with it. So this is basically kind of two healings at one time. He gets the physical healing, and God puts into his brain how to walk and, and, and move because it's not something that you just do automatically. And we all know that if you're down for a long period of time, sometimes we have to relearn to walk. You know, you've been, you've been sick for, for months and then you're getting back up. Uh, for me, I've had gout problems so bad, I have trouble walking up and down stairs at times because I, my, my knees are not as, as, as uh, uh, strong as, as they used to be and I've had to walk one step at a time for so long, I'm very nervous about trying to walk up and down steps the way we're supposed to. You know, one step when you go to the next step, go to the next step, go to the next step. I have nervousness doing that. This man just leapt up, having never walked. And then the people saw that. And it was a big deal. He is healed. But their response was kind of interesting because they said the gods are here. All right. Uh, they have not been listening to Paul and Silas telling them that God has sent Jesus. There's a gospel. They're doing this in the power of, of Jesus. They say the gods are here. And the gods they chose were Jupiter and Mercury, the head Greek god and his messenger. All right. Uh, and they're going, Jupiter and Mercury have come down to our city to be amongst us. Now, if you've studied anything about Greek and Roman mythology, you know that this is not a, that big a deal, that they really thought that the gods would come down and visit them every once in a while. And um, we have all kinds of different people that, that had sexual relationships with the, the gods and everything. There was all these things that went on in their mythology. And all the demigods, the half-gods that were from these unions between the gods coming down. So it was not hard for them to come to this conclusion. There's power. These, this man who's never walked is now healed. And he's walking amongst us. 
And these men are the ones that did it, so obviously they must be gods themselves. Because they know that people don't have the power to heal. And this is something that we need to understand. That, you know, when God uses us to do something through the Holy Spirit, it's not us. It's not even something that I earned. It's just that I had enough faith to ask God to do it, and God says, okay, I'm going to do it. And Paul and Barnabas are in an interesting place because they're being declared to be gods. And the worst part of that is the priest of Jupiter decide they're going to make a sacrifice to the gods. Now, this is a big problem for Paul and Barnabas because they are the followers of the one God. And you don't offer sacrifices, even in theirs, you just don't walk around offering sacrifices to God. You have to go to the temple and, and offer sacrifices. And these guys are coming out to lead a worship of them because of what they had done. And, you know, this is the sad thing. I have seen people that have done things in around, around uh, churches and the power of God, and then they get a little big-headed and start making it look like they did it. You know, come to my healing, healing uh, uh, meeting and see God work. All right, well, that's wonderful, but who's the one doing the healing? Is it God or is it you? Now, I don't feel, think of myself as a healer, but you know what? I have prayed for lots of people who've gotten healed. It's not necessarily my mission, ministry, but you know what? God has allowed me to be somebody who's prayed for people that have been healed. I have seen miracles over and over again. God is wanting to do miracles even in our day. He's looking for people who are willing to say, I'm going to pray and this person's going to get healed. And he's looking for people to have the faith that this man did, that they will get healed. Because God wants to show, I, would, I almost want to say he wants to show off. <laughs> you know, I want to be careful how I say that because that has a lot of negative con con connotations to it. But I do think God likes to show off every once in a while. He likes to do the miraculous and say, I, uh, and for him it's not even showing off. He's looking at it it's like, well, you think it's a big deal? I healed this guy, you think that's a big deal? I created him. You know, I created the whole world, and you think it's a big deal that I, that I healed? You think it's a big deal that I met your needs when I created the whole world and I own everything? And God is, you know, I think God shakes his head sometimes, like, you guys are impressed by such little things. You know, you, you, know, you're, you get impressed, and it's just a small thing. And for us, a miracle is a big deal. You know, none of the doctors could make this guy walk. Nobody could heal him. Even in our days, they wouldn't have been able to, to heal him probably. And God just steps in and goes, he's healed. You know, we need to understand the power of God is so much farther than we can even comprehend. You know, he is more powerful than we are, more powerful than we can even think of him being. And when he comes down and does things, it would be similar to the little child looking up to the mom and dad who seem to be so powerful, they can do anything in the, in, the kids, in the little kid's mind. And then multiply that by a million times between us and God. You know, we look at him and say, God, you are just so wonderful. You're so powerful. You can do all these things. And he goes, you don't even know the beginning of my, my strength. You know, you're, you're stuck at this infinite level. He goes, I'm, inf 
I, I am fi I'm, you're here at a finite level and I'm infinite, God says. You know, I have so much more for you and you're stuck at what you see. The more that we learn about the infinite God, the more powerful that we will understand him to be. And this is the beauty. He's infinite in love. He is infinite in mercy. He's infinite in forgiveness. He's infinite in power. He's infinite in his omnipresence. You know, and this is one of the things that God has really been revealing to me because I used to think in terms of omnipresence being everywhere at the same time. But God is revealing to me that he's every time at the same time as well. And if there's something beyond time, he's all of that. <laughs> Anything out there that is created, God is above it. So the more I study my physics and the more I see about the dimensions, God's above all those dimensions. And he encompasses all of them in, its, in completeness. You know, people go, well, you know, are there any other lives in this, in this universe? Doesn't matter. God created them if there are. Really doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't say anything, but you know what? If he did, he did. Physics is telling us that the universes are, pro there's multiple universes t touching each other. You know what? I have no problem with that. God created those universes too. So I have no problem with there being another universe. God, God would have created it because he is over everything. But you understand how we get bigger and bigger and bigger with our understanding and it's like God still is over all of it. Paul and Barnabas here, are, they're getting ready to offer, offer sacrifices to them because they did a miracle by, through God. And this distresses them. Once they realize what's happening, these, these priests are coming down and they've got They've got oxen, they've got garland, and they're ready to make a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas because they think they're gods. And immediately they go, why do you do these? We are men just like you. This is very important for, us to peop for people to understand. When we are talking to people about God, and they start accusing us of thinking we're better than them and everything. We need to make sure they understand, no, we are just forgiven. God has forgiven. We are just like you. And we see this being very true because Jesus walked on this world so that he would know our passions and our desire and what has, and the things that attack us. He can be a good counselor and a good provider because even though he did not participate in sin, he had to go through all the problems that we had to do. He had to grow up as a young child with all the temptations to, to lie, to steal, to do all those things. He grew up as a teenager with all the passions and, and lustful ideas that would be attacking him because of the hormones raging through his body just like every other teenager had to deal with. Now, he did not entertain any of these things. He did not fall for any of these things. But he went through all the attacks he went through the body going crazy <laughs> and, and, and wanting things and yet did not fall. He's been there. He knows what it is. He knows what it is to have a false accusation and have nobody stand up for him. He knows what it is to be executed for crimes that he did not commit. You know, he knows. He knows what it's like to be attacked for no reason. He was perfect and yet was attacked by the Pharisees and the scribes and the people because of his perfection, mostly. Uh, 
he knows what it is to be abused and rejected. So he knows exactly what we go through. He is our strength because he's been there. He did not fall in it, but he knows what it means to go through all of these things. And Paul and Silas are saying, we're just like you guys. <laughs> we are just human beings. And he says, we preached unto you that you should turn away from the vanities unto the living God. <laughs> all right? Yeah, quit, quit following the ways that you're following these ideas of these gods. And then I love it because now he does something that he has to do because his audience is not Jewish. When he preaches to a Jewish audience and he says, this is God, they immediately know everything about God from, from Genesis, the creator, the, the, the master, the one who led them out of Exodus and all these things. But when he talks to Gentiles, note what he has to say. Who made heaven and earth and the seas and all the things that are therein who in times past suffered all nations to walk in, in their own ways. He's defining God. In our world today in America, when we talk to people about God, we almost have to define who God is anymore. It wasn't that way back in the early 1900s or even the mid-1900s. People knew who God was. You said God, and we knew we were talking about the creator of the world who built the laws and the rules of the universe. In today's world, you say God and you don't know who you're, you need to make sure you're talking to the, to the right God. You know, even if you use the term Jesus, there are people who don't know who Jesus is. There are all kinds of cults that deny that Jesus is the Son of God. And they sound like they're saying the same thing. They will talk about Jesus. They will talk about Jesus, all these different things about Jesus, but when you really start talking to them, they will say, well, he wasn't the Son of God. He was just a good man. He was a good prophet. Or one, one cult out there tells us that he, he was a really good man. He was one of the sons of God. He was the, the brother of Lucifer. Okay, we're not talking about the same Jesus, people. <laughs> you know, but we need to really understand, and sometimes we need to ask questions. When somebody says, I believe in Jesus, well, that's wonderful. What do you believe about Jesus? You know, well, he was a really good man. Not enough. <laughs> well, you know, he, he, was a, he was a good teacher. Not enough. <laughs> Besides which, he wasn't, if you want to go that route, he wasn't a good teacher because he claimed to be God. And a good teacher is not going to claim to be God. He forgave sins. He honored, you know, he said before Abraham was, I am. You know, so if you just want to say he was a good teacher, you're deceived because he was not a good teacher unless he was the son of God which he is. So we need to be able to understand who he is and what he is. And when we're talking to people, get them to understand. We're not talking about this good man you know, that died, on, died out of a mis misunderstanding. We're not talking about you know, the, the brother of Lucifer and they fight, fight each other because they have different plans on how to redeem man. Uh, we're not talking about any of those things. We're talking about the Son of God God himself, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Any other belief is not enough. And this is why it's important for us to understand, and this is why it's important, you know, when people tell me they're a Christian, I usually ask, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? Now, in the late 1900s, we used to hear, and before, we used to hear, well, I'm an American, obviously, I'm a Christian. 
We don't hear that as much anymore. There's not that people buy in on that. But I still hear things like, well, grandpa was a pastor. Well, that is wonderful, but what does that mean to you? <laughs> you know, mom and dad took me to church every Sunday. Okay, that's wonderful, but what does that mean to you? You know, uh, you know we need to be careful. Well, I go to church. Well, that's wonderful, but going to church does not make you a Christian. And we need to be able to understand that these things are not what it is. It's surrendering our life to Christ as Lord and Savior that makes us a Christian. And these are important for us as we deal with people to know what it is they believe in. Because this is important. You know, do you have to believe everything the same way as everybody else? No. You know, can, you, can you be a Christian and believe in evolution and, and not in creation? You can, because it's all about Jesus. I don't know what you're believing, because you have to have the fall of man to have sin to be the problem, to get saved and need a Savior in the first place. But, you know, you can believe that you have sin and that Jesus Christ is your way without, without going back to creation. <laughs> but the, cre the, the question is, why? <laughs> you know, uh, we have churches all over today that don't believe the Bible, don't believe in Jesus, yet call themselves Christian churches. And it's like, well, what are you teaching? What are you believing? If you're not following Jesus, you're not believing the Bible, what kind of Christianity are you following? Oh, we're following the Christianity of good works. Do, do all these good works and you're going to be okay? You're a Christian. I'm sorry, that's not what my Bible... Well, you know, I don't believe that book anyway. You know, we need to be able to get down to the, the point and make sure people understand. Salvation is by grace and the act of Jesus Christ. And then he clothes us in his righteousness and we are forgiven. And this is the beauty of it. When we're forgiven, we are going to heaven. You know, and the one thing that will keep people out of heaven is a real simple thing. They reject Jesus Christ. When they stand at the white throne judgment, the only question on God's, God's lips to them is, what did you do with my son? And if they're standing at the white throne judgment, they rejected the son. Because we will be in the stages behind him after the Bema Seat judgment for us where our works are burned up for, you know, and we get our rewards. We will be with him in the jury seat with nothing to do because everybody standing out there is guilty. And God says, what have you done with my son? And people will be sent to hell for rejecting Jesus Christ. We will go to heaven for accepting Jesus Christ. It's a very simple thing. Now, I'm not going to get into are there degrees of hell and everything like Milton talked about, and it could be, but sin has been forgiven. So I don't know. I don't, I don't really think hell is going to be bad without degrees of punishment. It's an eternal punishment, an eternal fire where people are burning for eternity and their conscience will not die. The worm does not die, it tells us. Their conscience will be bothering them for all of eternity. Imagine... When God has tweaked your conscience and said, you need to repent. And we get to repent and get rid of that con bad conscience. Imagine having that for eternity. Never going away. Never going away. Burning in darkness. And this is contradictory to us. To be burning with fire and, and be in darkness is something we can't understand. But there is no light in hell. And if you want to go crazy, get yourself in pitch black. It's said that if you get into a cavern or a cave where it is pitch black, 
and I mean no light, they will say that you will go insane after just a few hours because we are full, so full of senses that are being totally blocked in eternity like that. No senses, no, no sight, no, no, no. You hear the screams all around you. you. You're screaming out all around, you know, and people are hearing it. Your conscience is burning. You're being physically you know, burnt, even though you don't have a physical body, you, you feel the, the sensation of burning. And it's eternal. And people go, wow, how can a loving God give eternal punishment? Well, when they asked for it by rejecting Jesus Christ, they get what they asked for. And he's going to say, this is what they get. And it's hard. It's hard to picture God, but that's because we forget that God is holy and righteous. God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and his holiness and righteousness must punish sin. And this is something we have... Now, we as Christians, we, we love having the God of love and mercy and grace because he poured out his anger on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our propitiation, and that's a big word, and it has a, it has a real powerful meaning. It, it means that he took all the anger of God for sin upon himself. Not most of, not, not some of, all. The anger of God was poured on Jesus on the cross. Which is why the only question that God has for anybody is, what have you done with my son? He poured out his anger on his son, and to reject it is to reject a huge gift. And I don't know how many of us have ever given somebody a gift and have it been rejected. You know, uh, and it hurts, you know, especially if it was a special gift. You know, we, we went out and we really... We really hunted for this gift. We wanted to make this a gift. And they go, I don't want it. Don't want that gift. God has given us the infinite gift. And he holds it out to people and says, this is, this is your salvation for eternity. And people are going to reject it. And when they stand up there, they're going to be without excuse. And God will show them every time that they rejected him. They rejected the gospel message and be brought into judgment. And it says that they, nevertheless he left himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven in fruitful seasons, filling the hearts with food and gladness. Paul is giving a very interesting statement here. He goes, everything that, that happens to you that is good comes from God. And in the Old Testament it's told the rain falls on the just and the unjust. He gives bountiful harvest. God does good things even for those who reject him. You know, he gives them oxygen every day. He gives them a new day to see him. He gives them food. He gives them, he gives them water. Real, realize that God is powerful enough that he could take all those things away from anybody who's not following him that he wants to. You know, he could just say, okay, you're, you're so bad, I'm not giving you oxygen today. He doesn't. But he could. He does give blessings to people that don't deserve it. And it's sometimes hard to understand. People will go, God, why do all these bad people have so much good being done to them? And God is saying, so that when they stand before me at the white throne judgment, I'll be able to say, I gave you this, I gave you this, I gave you this, I gave you this, and you still rejected me. 
And the other side of the coin is that most of them aren't as happy as we think they are. When we look at the rich person or the famous person and we think, wow, they've got, the, they've got everything. They've got money, they've got servants, they've got you know, fame. And then we read about them taking, getting, uh, dying of a drug overdose or being checked into an to a alcohol rehab. We look at them, you got everything, and yet you don't, you don't seem to be happy with it. Because they're not, because they don't have everything. Because inside us is the thing that what is inside us is a, shape, a God-shaped hole that only God can fill. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes said, vanity of vanities, when I try to fill it with anything else, it's nothing but vanity, it's empty. God says, I gave you all these blessings and you rejected them. You did not see that they were from me. Yeah. Because they would be able to say, well, if they lived a miserable life and everything was bad, they could go, God, well, you, you never did anything for me. I just had nothing but a bad life. Now, that's all they're focusing on anyway. They're not focusing on the, on the good. And usually we do the same thing when we're, not, when we're feeling miserable. We're focusing on all the bad stuff that's happening to us and forgetting about all the good stuff that God has given us. And the world does this all the time. You know, they get up in the morning and they're still alive. That's a blessing in and of itself, especially if you don't know him. They just don't know how big a blessing that is. And God reaches out to them and he puts Christians in their way and he puts the gospel message in their way. And one thing that has been said, and I, and I have a feeling it's probably true, I've not done the analyzation on it, but they say that people have to hear the gospel message five to seven times before they respond. You know, and I'm not going to overrule that because I don't know how many times I heard it between the time I, before I, by the time I first heard it to the time that I got saved at age 10. But I'd been in church a lot. You know, so I heard the message. How many times? I don't know. You know. And if we think about it, how many times did we hear the gospel message in our, in our lifetime before we got saved? Usually we say something like, well, I responded and that was the first time I heard the gospel message. Well, you know what? In one sense, that's very true. When we finally responded, it was the first time it got past our ears <laughs> and actually hit us at the spirit level. The other times we just hit our brain and said, well, rejected. <laughs> don't, don't care about that message. Yeah, in one ear, out the other, got stored away in the brain, never, never to be remembered. But then one day, it hit us. I am a sinner. I do need God. And many of the world never respond to that message. And this is the sad thing. Jesus died for us in all the world. And he said, many are you know, called, but few are chosen. You know, comparatively, the Christianity is a remnant. Even though we seem to have millions of us around, we're still a remnant compared to the entire population of the world. And most of the people who name the name of Christ really aren't even saved. And that's the scary thing. They don't know what it means to be saved. 
because there are so many churches in America and the rest of the world that don't teach the gospel of Christ. And if we, and this is something that is scary. In America, we teach this prosperity gospel. If you follow God, everything is going to be good. Well, that's not the gospel of Christ. He said they hated me, they're going to hate you. You know, now, does that mean that God doesn't give us things? No, he gives us peace that passes understanding. He gives us so much when we pay attention to what he's giving us. But it doesn't mean that I'm going to have all the money in the world, all the stuff that I want, you know, name it and claim it, you know, just, God, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that, and say, God, you're obligated to give it to me. No, he's not obligated to give us anything. He gives us salvation, which is the most important thing that we can have. And the peace that comes with that salvation is the beauty, beauty of this, that we have peace, that we have him living in us. And ultimately, we have a home in heaven where everything that is promised to us will be given to us. We are children if we're saved, we're children of the God of the universe, the creator of all things. Now, that means when we get to heaven, our suite of rooms is going to be something that we can't even begin to fathom because we are king's kids. And we're going to get there, and if you've ever watched any of the movies where somebody shows up in the palace and, and experiences what the, the prince or the princess has in their room, Multiply it. <laughs> Multiply it so many more times because we're the children of the king of the universe. And he's going to bless us with so much in there that we don't deserve. And the new heaven and new earth that comes down, you know, 1,500 miles cubed. <laughs> and that has our mansions in it, our suites of rooms in it. That's room for a lot of people. I had one person break it down and saying that if you break it down and you, and you had so many people, and I go, he goes, you get to have three or four square miles <laughs> of room in this city. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I could make a pretty good uh, life in three or four miles of area. And those are decorated rooms for us <laughs> that God has decorated for us. And when you really think about creation, we don't even know half of what God has done in creation. There are reports where people are looking at things with ultraviolet light and, and infrared light, and they're seeing God's patterns and glory in decorations and flowers and animals in other light that we can't even see in. And saying, wow, God, you put that there just so that we would discover it before the end of the time? and see what you had done 6,000 years ago. And it's an amazing thing that God is so more above us that he's put some things in there that we're just now, after 6,000 years of, of looking at things, starting to learn about. And even then, we don't understand science completely. There is so much about science that we don't understand. We know a lot about science in our day and age, but there's so much about it we don't understand. And God says, yeah, I just put it out there for you. I put it out there so that you guys with your intelligent brains could figure this out. And people are looking at it and denying God. You know, 
We have a world that's telling us we just got here by accident. All this beauty, all this organization, all these, all these scientific laws just accidentally happened. Life just accidentally happened. Now, this is, a, this is a strange thing. When you talk to an evolutionist, evolutionists will tell you that, that life just doesn't spontaneously generate unless you're an evolutionist, and it had to happen at least once. That a pile of chemicals somehow became life. Now, here's your pool of chemicals. And one time, somewhere in the millions and billions of years, it, that, that pool of chemicals became li alive. Get your own dirt. But even then, the chemicals, no matter what you do to them, won't become life. We can, in the lab, make an amino acid out of those chemicals by hitting them with an electrical spark or something, but we still do not have life. And you can have all the amino acids you want, but it's not going to be, and you might even join them together to form something, but it's not life. Life always generates from life. And this is the problem with all other explanations of how we got here. Science can't explain it because you have to have a supernatural event to bring life. And when they reject the supernatural and try to do it through just natural means, it can't happen. And the very laws of science really bring us to a place where you have to have a supernatural. In the laws of thermodynamics really say there has to be a supernatural event to get things started. Now, there, you have to get into this and you, you, you argue, you know, make the arguments and everything, but there has to be something outside of nature. Now, that doesn't prove our God. It just proves that something outside of nature has to start things. Now, then you have to start looking at, okay, what is the best God? What is the best supernatural event to, to describe it? And the Bible is the best answer to those when you get and study them. But we look at this and they, Paul and Zarnabas are saying, we are just followers of the God of the universe. And they note that they say the God, the one that started everything. Not Jupiter, the head of all the gods in your, in your pantheon, but the one and only God. And this is the beauty of it. There is only one God. All the other false gods in these pantheons are man-made creations that are just strong, powerful men and women. They have all the problems of a man and woman. If, you, if you've ever studied the Greek and Roman mythologies, those guys were just very strong people. They got jealous, they had hatred, they were envious, they were bitter, they fought with each other because somebody else had something they didn't have, and they just had a lot of power because they were gods. Yeah. And this is, we see all through scripture. When people create a god, the way they do it is they create a god that is something that they want, and then to worship him, you participated in it. All the gods of fertility, you were just very lustful and desired. And how did you worship the gods of fertility? Through orgies. <laughs> you know, how did you worship the gods of power? You sacrificed whatever was important to you to get the power from them. You know, all of these things happened. You know, they had a god of the thieves. 
So how did you worship that God? You stole things for that God. You know, over and over, these things took the worst instincts of man, turned them into a God, and to worship them, you used that, that idea that God says is a sin to worship them. And we become like what we worship is what we're told in the scriptures. So when we worship God, we become like him over time. If you want to worship an idol, you will become like that idol for all the bad that is involved in that idol, we will become like it because of what we worship. If I worship power, I'm willing to give up everything for power. If I worship lust, I'm willing to give up everything for that lustful activities. If I'm worshiping lying, there are people who are just worshiping lying and they end up being nothing but liars. You can't believe a word they say. You know, if they tell you the sky is blue, you better go out and look, it's probably cloudy. You know, because they just can't tell the truth. This is very important. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, we are just like you. And in verse 18, it says, and with these sayings, they scarce restrain the people from offering the sacrifices. The mobs out there ready to make this sacrifice. And they're saying, no, we're not a God. We're not, we're not, we're not. And it says, they barely were able to keep them from making the sacrifice. Yeah. And you know, this is something that is something important for us as Christians. When we are witnessing for Christ, we always need to point to Christ. Never let people build you up for what you're doing for God. And it is easy to get wrapped up when you're serving God and people are saying nice things about you. It is easy to start thinking somehow, oh yeah, it's me. And it is something that we have to be on guard against all the time. If God is doing something through us, it is God. If it's not God, it wasn't worth doing in the first place. You know, it may look good, it may, may even feel good at the time, but it's not worth it. It's not, it doesn't have eternal rewards. And when God is working through us, we need to always make sure that we're keeping aware that it is God. You know, it is God. When we teach a good lesson, it's God. When, when we do something miraculous, you know, it's God. When we get to witness to somebody and actually have them pray a sinner's prayer, it's God. It's not me. My words didn't mean anything. You know, I just happened to have God talk to somebody at the same time that God touched their heart and they responded. This is the beauty we point to God in all that we do and keep following him and lift him up in all that we do and all that we follow and always lift him up. Do not let your pride to get in the way of serving God. And it's an amazing thing how many times people will start out with all the right attitudes and then pride takes over in their life. And they start taking credit for what God is doing. And we want to be careful about that. Many pastors have built big churches and then all of a sudden started looking and thinking, well, look what I have done. And that's the beginning of the end for them because they stopped focusing on God. And we want to be careful in our life that we don't ever begin to say, look what I have done. Look what I have done for God. God, I, I do this, I do this, I give you this, I give you that. And God's saying, so what? You know, when we really think about it, you know, even if we gave God 100% of our income, God's saying, well, so what? That's not, that's not that big a deal. I own everything anyway. You know, 
God, I'm serving you all the time. You know, and God says, well, okay, that's fine. I've got lots of servants. You know, but when he says, I want you, God wants us. <laughs> and it's an amazing thing that he wants us. And I've said this over and over. I, I don't understand why he wants us. I think God gets a terrible deal when he got me. You know, uh, he died on the cross so that he could get me. That doesn't make any sense to me. And yet, he did it. And he did it willingly. And he did it knowing that that was going to be the cost before he created mankind in the first place. Which is hard to understand. <laughs> and yet, he loves us so much that he did all of this so that we could spend eternity with him by his grace. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for helping us to understand. Lord, keep our focus on you in all that we do. Help us to, to look to you and to stay focused on you for what you're doing in our lives. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.